We are encountering silence. Encountering Silence is made possible by the generous support of listeners like you. Please visit patreon.com slash encountering silence to learn more about how you can be part of the circle and share in our efforts to bring silence into our all too noisy world. Joining us today in Encountering Silence is Bushi Yamato Damashi. Bushi is also known as Haiwa no Bushi, which means the peaceful samurai. He is the founder of Sangha Bodhi Cristo, a Buddhist Christian student and practice community, and directs the Thomasville Buddhist Center in Thomasville, North Carolina. He is a popular speaker on Buddhism and on Buddhist-Christian dialogue at colleges, universities, churches, and conferences like the Wild Goose Festival. He is a student of Buddhist teachers like Lama Rod Owens and Lama Justin Von Bodash. Like many American Buddhists, his practice is eclectic, drawing from the Daishin Zen and the Vajrayana lineages. Cassidy and I each met Bushi at the Wild Goose Festival, a gathering that takes place near Asheville, North Carolina, each summer. The Wild Goose is a festival for people exploring the intersections between spirituality, justice, and art. Bushi has spoken at the Wild Goose Festival almost every year since its beginning in 2011. He speaks on topics such as the making of a Christ Sangha, and celebrating and integrating interspiritual energetic healing modalities. Bushi credits the Wild Goose Festival for being a place to commune with fellow and former Christian exiles, a nurturing and healing communal space. Bushi Yamato Damashi, welcome to Encountering Silence. Thank you, my dear friend. It's an honor to be here. So we always love to begin our conversations with our guests simply to ask you a little bit about your relationship with silence. How has silence been a part of your life and your spiritual journey? Silence became pretty much the foundation for the rest of my living with the life that I have became the foundation for the rest of my living. As a Zen monk, one of the things that uh, was first uh, told to me when asking a question, and it was a rather trivial question, some things that I did not know, my uh, teacher said to me, you should speak only if you can improve upon silence. And so in so taking this advice, he further admonished me to look deeper into the saying, and the saying itself, speak only if you can improve upon silence, is an invitation. It is a deep invitation to explore what it is that you have a query about uh, with all of your senses, not necessarily using them to give commentary on what it is that you're, you're observing or what you're doing, but to, to draw closer to what it is doing. 
so that you might understand it without adding some sort of, you know, mental contamination that we may devise of our own minds about the situation. So silence for me is quite important. One of the things that I learned many years ago about silence is uh, that, uh, well, no matter how hectic the circumstance may be, no matter how difficult uh, the experience that you are experiencing, in many cases, uh, not all, but in many cases, it does not kill you. This is quite a, a profound observation, you know, and many of us uh, don't, <laughs> don't pay attention to that mere fact that we can take time to slow down uh, and just be with the most heightened stimuli as well as with the most um, mediocre stimuli in our lives and still be okay and learn from it. Bushi, would you also say that silence for you is a place of gestation and um, kind of enlivening that prophetic imagination in order to speak, in order to share? It is. I, I think you're absolutely right, Cassidy. You know, before I took retreat um, in 2008 as a Christian minister who had been um, had, who had been doing Christian ministry for, uh, oh, I'd say, just about 20 years, uh, and then growing up in the church, there are all sorts of ideas and theories and perceptions and philosophies, even um, messages that you can, teachings and lessons that you can pass on readily, easily. Um, but one thing I did not know as a Christian minister was the other side of the witnessing gospel. The other side of the witnessing gospel is silence. If one side is doing, the other side is not doing. Mm. If you're heavy on one side, if you're constantly doing, but you never shut that down, then there's a good possibility you're gonna be, uh, well, you'll acquire a great deal of miles, uh, but uh, you'll never, understand what it means to sit there and and really just be mm. so silence for me is a period of time in which um i seek the balance i seek the balance you know and uh, in seeking the balance you you can pretty much uh, guarantee you'll know exactly where you are and whom you are so bushi what um christian tradition do you come out of that you were doing ministry in yeah. So when I was doing ministry, when I left uh, ministry in 2008 to become a, uh, a Bosatsu monk, um, I had been following a very Southern Baptist tradition. And I was, uh, prior to that, I was like many people, um, I was uh, Baptist, Methodist, Church of God, you name it. Been there, done that. The reason why I'm curious, um, and you aren't by any chance from Florida, are you? Originally, I am. I, I'm originally from West Palm Beach, Florida. I was born. I'm a native Floridian, as I tell people. I was born and raised in West Palm Beach, and most of my adolescent life and teenage life, I grew up in a little town uh, just within Palm Beach County called Riviera Beach, Florida. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So the, I'm the reason the reason why I'm asking is your just your voice. You have a beautiful voice. Um, and uh, but you, you remind me of Howard Thurman, right. and um, you know, and so yeah, yeah, it's um, what a wonderful person to to be reminded of because talk about somebody with an amazing voice, but um, 
you know, I'm sure it's the it's the Florida, the cadence of of the Florida background, because of course he was from Daytona, but then also um, probably your experience in in the Baptist tradition, the Southern Baptist tradition. So, um, so I think you, you probably share some some spiritual DNA, and also the impor- had, importance of silence for both of them. You know, probably uh, yeah, absolutely, and it is probably largely accredited to the mere fact that uh, growing up in South Florida. You know, uh, Sunday mornings were when 10, 10 o'clock or 1030 service starts, the, the weather outside is already just about 100 degrees. Growing up, uh, I started out in uh, my semi or quasi acquaintance with ministry when I was six years old, introducing my grandmother or in churches and on stages. And I did that for up until I was 15 years of age. So I, uh, I guess I rather developed this, uh, this rhythm, as you say, um, coupled with uh, just being observant of everyone else. You know, I just kind of naturally morphed into whomever I am now, I guess. So how did you discover the Dharma? I was uh, in the Marine Corps. I think the year was 1991. I went into, I was in Japan and I had an opportunity to, uh, to wander into a Zen monastery or, or Zen temple there. And I was utterly floored. All of the uh, mm-hmm. information that I ever um, recognized or had come across in Buddhism uh, came out of Britannica's and uh, National Geographic's. And, you know, every now and then there'd be some television show that would come on that would highlight um, uh, Asia. And um, so I, I ventured into the, uh, the temple and... Um, it was breathtaking. Um, the silence, the compassion, the colors, the rituals, the meanings of the various things in which they did really meant something to me. And I think that was the first time I had discovered that, wow, I've been a diehard Christian my whole life. And uh, my church, um, none of the churches that I had been familiar with seemed to have this kind of energy about. It. Now, there was a certain energy. Um, that happened in my church, a more ecstatic energy, but I had never seen an ecstatic energy, a very enlivened energy, being very still without all of the loud screaming and crying and preaching. That, for me, was absolutely profound. The same energy uh, found in a very quiet temple uh, that existed in my Southern Baptist Baptist Church, Greater Bethel Primitive Baptist Church down in uh, Riviera Beach, Florida, that same energy resided there. And uh, I was hooked. I was utterly hooked. And so today I equate mindfulness and uh, the Holy Spirit in the same vein of the energy, the observation of the power um, is the same work that the Holy Spirit does for us in the Christian sense. Uh, I remember coming up and one of the things that was often told to me was that the Holy Spirit will bring back to your remembrance, you know, various things. So mindfulness is a way to gain that, uh, gain that memory. Being very aware uh, strengthens your memory. Being very present strengthens your memory of the things that come and go. And so walking into that temple uh, really did something to me. If, if that makes any sense. What's... No, that makes total sense. I, I come from a background, just to, as a kind of a segue into this question here. 
I come from a background, an academic background, um, and my degree is in comparative work and specifically Buddhist-Christian dialogue. And okay. in comparative theology is a, is a kind of theology where the attempt is, what I hear you saying, is, is an attempt to talk about what you're describing here. The main, one of the main players that helped develop the field of comparative theology, which is relatively new in the academy, it's the idea of not comparative religion, not putting two religions side by side, we're going to stand back here and look at what religions are doing and see and compare. Comparative theology is I'm in a religion and now I bump into somebody else's religion I'm not a member of. And then I recognize something there. And now what do I do with that? You know? Absolutely. And so there's the, the story of one of the early the. Uh, comparative theologians was a Jesuit priest who had to go to India. And this man was completely in love with Christ and had no problems with his faith, but just like you, walked into a temple of Vishnu and was uh, yes. and was floored, felt like absolutely like he had come home and right. didn't know what to do with that because— he wasn't having a crisis of faith. He wasn't like right. running away from Christ or, but he, how to, you know, make sense of that as a Christian. And so then this idea of comparative theology. So my, my question for you is I'm hearing this background in the introduction. We heard you talking about a com Christian and Buddhist kind of center. Could you flesh that out for us? What, what goes on at that center and, What's happening there? Do you do stuff like the way you've just described that you walked into the Zen temple and felt this whole, like the Holy Spirit, but a different way? Are you doing similar things or what's going on there? Absolutely. So our center is a quite unique center. Uh, and where the center is located is quite a unique uh, location. We are in a very conservative part of North Carolina. And when I refer to conservatism, I refer to it as uh, over 90% of the people who live within this region, within this area, uh, this part of the state are Christian. And there are very few um, other religious groups that, uh, that, are, that are found here. So to bring Buddhism into this particular community, there has to be some sort of relationship. Mm -hmm. um, and I do that, uh, we largely do that, from a very compassionate perspective. We start very small. You see, we, um, we feed and uh, we clothe, we do a lot of things uh, in this very uh, conservative area that many of the churches um, don't have the capacity or the willingness to do. Mm. We dare to open our doors uh, for all of our lessons that are being taught here. We, uh, we teach uh, introduction to Buddhism, there's yoga, uh, and there's also what we call Christ Fellowship. Uh, we just started Christ Fellowship about, um, about two months ago. And what it is, is we introduce uh, Buddhism to pastors. Mm. And uh, so that they might understand a little bit more about uh, Buddhism and yoga, simply because their congregations are changing. Mm -hmm. uh, there are many people quite like myself. I would sit in church uh, being a martial artist and a yoga practitioner and found no one to communicate that with because, well, that 
that in and of itself is a sin. Mm. Uh, and so we find the areas in which uh, we know that uh, many Christians would like to venture into, that they don't have the capacity to do that in their churches. And uh, we offer uh, our center as a way uh, of doing it. And I think uh, one of the things that really uh, helps us to do that is that uh, for the last 10 years, uh, we've been so profound in loving this community that uh, people realize, well, there, there are no harm. Um, they, they really mean for us to do well and some, somehow feeding people's stomachs and, uh, you know, offering domicile when there's, uh, you know, domestic violence. We've actually taken in people here at the Buddhist Center uh, when there's been domestic violence. So this, this, uh, this helps us to be able to do that. Right. And so in a sense, when people come uh, over the last 10 years, they've developed a sense of home, you mm. know, regardless of what, uh, what the religion is, this feels good to my body, this feels good to my mind. And that is the vein through which we, uh, we do what we do. Our conversation will return after this brief moment of silence. Please take a breath and be present in the silence. I'm reminded of this this um, model and theological reflection that was just shown to me a few days ago um, from Killen and De Beer, and it kind of insinuates that when we stand too much in tradition, that's a standpoint of certitude, and when we stand too much in experience, it's a standpoint of self-assurance. Um, but standing with a foot in both those things is a standpoint of exploration, mm. and everything you seem to be saying reflects this, um, this openness and this vastness, a point of exploration, um, openness to people and difference. And at the end of the day, true justice work. I mean, this, this openness, um, and, and Bushi, I was really touched, um, by, by your, your speaking to and your, um, yeah, just your voice on on justice work in the world. And um, I know you and I had a conversation the last day at Wild Goose and I was wearing one of my rainbow tank tops and we got to talking and, and you were telling me about how a friend was um, working on um, making you a rainbow. Um, what, I'm a sorry. Rainbow called a Zen. Okay, the, yeah. My... Z-E-N, Zen. Some yeah, people right. call it a, uh, a kisa or, you know, some sort of shawl, but uh, in our tradition, they're called Zens, yes. Yeah. So I wonder if you could speak a little bit to um, justice work and in terms of um, holding justice work amid this great silence and reflection and mindfulness and... Um, how how we can do that 
Um, a lot of times people see, you know, silence and mindfulness and contemplation as an excuse to do nothing. And I, I clearly do not see that in you and your work. And I wonder how, how that is. One of the things, you know, we, we entertain a lot of social activists here at our center. Mm. And I think one of the we do that is because there is uh, in the world, it appears to be, this, uh, this hurry up, this, this sense of let's hurry up and get something done. Let us, uh, let us expedite um, an answer. Let us expedite a remedy. Let's come together rather uh, hurriedly and find out what it is that we must do in order to correct the problem. Well, there's so much wrong with that particular notion um, that uh, it is no doubt um, and little wonder as to why many social activists and much of our social justice work uh, goes, you know, uh, it doesn't reach its full potential. You see, human beings on this planet have uh, a unique ability. We have an ability to uh, be very technological. We are incredible discoverers. And uh, we do tremendous things to examine the world around us, all of those things that are outside of ourselves. Um, we do fantastic work in discovering those things. However, what we fail to realize is that a sincere, um, I guess, assessment or a sincere knowledge of where the individual assessor is in their own individual life um, is where much of, uh, much of the dismay is born. If you send a teacher into the classroom uh, let's say seventh grade, and uh, she only has knowledge of maybe the fourth grade, will she be effective? To some degree, yes. But to some degree, no. If you send human beings to go out into the world and to fix all of the human problems, yet the human beings that are going to seek those human problems have not come to full understanding of themselves. Will they be effective? To some degree, but not entirely. And I think that is where we are. I think in the world today, there's a great deal of push towards doing something for me as a reaction to something that was done to me. And in many cases, uh, we seem to grab a hold to the rush, rush to or to react as opposed to taking time to really see what all the factors were that went into the creation of this thing. My daddy used to say something all the time. He said, you know, he said, uh, buddy, if you start out sideways, that's the way that you'll end up. And when I consider the, the country that we're in, it's very, wonderful country of the United States. Uh, we started out sideways. We assumed that we could be a wonderful, loving, and uh, accepting community uh, within the world's geography. But we did that on the basis of uh, slaves. We did that on the basis of inequality. We did that on the basis of uh, cutting people out of certain things. And so in many cases, these are the, or oh, I guess you could say the, the foundational points 
of any sort of um, remedy to, to social justice for us. Now, if you start out that way and you do not correct it, then every other effort to push forward towards justice is probably going to have the same effect. And I think that's where we are today. We take a look at the individuals. You know, there is something I call the post-traumatic stress disorder of our parents. Many of us today are fighting our grandparents' fight. We're fighting their parents' fight. And so there's a continuation of the fight, but there's no assessment of the self. We lend ourselves to the birth canal to become soldiers, you know, in an ongoing battle. Um, and in this way, we are more, uh, we're more akin to the movie, The Matrix. Are you familiar with this particular movie? Absolutely. A particular yes. part in the movie where the, the camera pans and there are fields of human beings that are born to fuel the machine. And uh, surprisingly, Neo is one of the ones who escapes out. But uh, we, in many cases, lend our ideas, our minds to social justice in the same vein. We come, we're born, and we're taught uh, this is what you need to fight for. And we jump right in the fight, never really assessing ourselves as human beings. And so this is where our depression comes from. This is where our sadness comes from. This is where our disillusionment comes from. You know, So social justice works must be born firstly within the heart of the individual who dares to, to do this work. If you, are, um, if you are incomplete, will your work not be incomplete? If you are not whole, will your work be not whole, you see? So we, we take a very individual approach to, to social justice work. What are you fighting for? Whose fight is this? Why do you see the need to fight? Is there another way that you can fight? You know, all while putting in perspective that you need to be mindful. These times have been here before. These fights have endured throughout the landscape of human history. How will we ever correct these things if we don't change the product of ourselves and lend that back to the social order? You see, if that any of that makes any sense to you whatsoever. Uh, it makes perfect sense, Bushi, and it reminds me, and I'm not sure if I've got the citation correct, I think it was Carl Jung, the, the psychologist, who said that no problem can be solved at the same level of consciousness that created it. Absolutely. Yeah, I don't know and, if it's I don't know if it's Jung or Einstein. I've, I've seen different people attributed that quote. Exactly. Yeah. Whoever said it, it was probably, you know, Wilfred Owens of, you know, Patchawati, New Jersey, and then it got attributed to all these other people. But, but it's such, a, such an important thing. And I think for those of us who really do believe that the struggle for justice must be embedded in a contemplative stance, that encapsulates sure. it. And, and you've articulated it beautifully as well. And I think my question to you, just wanting to go a little bit deeper with that, especially we find ourselves in a particularly polarized moment in our, in our public life, our shared public life as Americans. And one of the things that I continually struggle with is the sense of despair that I find. And I see it on both sides of the political spectrum. 
that there's no hope for dialogue. There's no hope for finding common ground. And so, you know, there does seem to be this incredible anger and this incredible, I think one of the first words you used was being patient, this incredible impatience that we, we must, we must fight the fight and defeat the foe now. And, you know, and when I think about what you were saying, I mentioned, I mentioned Dr. Thurman, you know, Martin Luther King. I mean, so many of the great uh, Gandhi, so many of the great spiritual kind of contemplative activists that we've seen over the past hundred years, they've always counseled this, no, we must take the breath first. We must be still before we act. And so my question my question to you, you know, and, and, and with your background in military and in, and in martial arts, I'm, I'm really curious to hear your thoughts here. But what do we say to that person who is so, so aware of the urgency that we face and so committed to acting now? How do we invite that person into the contemplative stance? It is amazing, you know, as human beings, we have, we have lost, uh, in many cases, you know, the true understanding of geography. I often uh, think of geography and I often think of geometry. Uh, we are a part of the larger cosmic geometry. We are, as human beings, plants, all of us are a part of it all. And much of our disparity with each other, with regards to ideas, politics, religion, those sorts of things, where we are warring with each other, is as a result of this misunderstanding that uh, the geometry of our enemy is our geometry as well, you see. Um, Sun Tzu, who, the author of uh, the, the Art of War, once made it uh, very clear in uh, one of his writings that uh, in order to defeat your enemy, you must first know your enemy's lot. And this takes time. This takes observation. This takes uh, a little bit of uh, contemplation, lots of contemplation, as a matter of fact, um, in order to fully understand what you are about to swing at what you're about to fire at, what you're about to go in after. You must uh, pay very close attention to know exactly um, what you're doing. And so I often tell people who have this, uh, this kind of right now mentality, you know, we need to do something. I hear it all the time. They say, you know, well, you know, we should do something about this. There was another shooting. There was another this. There's another that. We need to act. And uh, I often encourage, well, this is reactionary. Where are you when you come to see, you know, exactly all of the pieces that uh, went into this thing that you're, you're willing to attack, you're willing to go in after? And uh, it's difficult. It is difficult for people to wish to slow down when the senses are stirred. But I advise such. I advise this, uh, this sense of slowing down just for the mere fact that it is in slowing down that you can hear your opponent. It is in slowing down that your opponent exposes themselves more. You see, if you're not lashing, there's no particular need for them to react to the lashes back. And so it is an observing 
um, where they are, um, what they're doing, whether it be good or bad, that you can gain a tremendous deal of uh, information. You can have even uh, tremendous insight into oneself by recognizing that, wow, my enemy does the same thing that I do, you see. Um, and so it is important to do that. It is important to slow down. Where has all of our rushing gotten us now? It is 2019 and uh, you know, here we are. We've escalated the mass shooting rate. We've escalated the homeless rate. We've escalated the, uh, the contention of uh, domestic violence. We've uh, raided more countries uh, here in, in America. We've raided more countries and done more things uh, hurting people to propagate uh, um, liberty and democracy. And this is where it has landed us. Everyone's fearful, everyone's afraid. Uh, people don't know what to do. And so contemplation, going back to that yin and yang, is the only way um, to begin seeing clearly. And if we do not do that, then I fear, my greatest fear is that uh, we will rather abruptly end uh, much of the life process that takes place on this planet because we would uh, act hastily and harm each other in a, in a more profound way. So contemplation, the ability to be able to control oneself uh, enough to just see what's going on around you, just to see. We're not asking you know, people to come up with the answer. We're asking people to exercise a, a bit of discipline, self-discipline, to see themselves, see what they're working with, see the opposing side and see what they're working with, what they're really all about, to deeply understand them, to come to a place to empathize with other human beings. This is what we, what we seek to, uh, to, to aid people in doing. This is what is needed. This is the end of the first part of a two-part interview. The conclusion to this interview will be released in our next episode next week. We are encountering silence. I'm Carl McCollman. To learn more about me, please visit carlmccollman.com. I'm Cassidy Hall. Find out about my work at cassidyhall.com. I'm Kevin Johnson. My current website is kevinmichaeljohnson.com. Please visit the podcast's website at encounteringsilence.com where you can learn more about each of our episodes and find links to purchase books and other resources we discuss on the podcast. When you make a purchase through a link we provide, the podcast receives a small affiliate commission from amazon.com. Thank you for doing so. Please also visit patreon.com forward slash encountering silence to learn more about how you can be part of our circle of supporters and share in our efforts to bring meaningful conversations about silence to our all-too-noisy world. Thank you.